It's a good way to start the, the new year, obviously, uh, worshiping our, our God, worshiping our King, and hopefully some of us are starting with a new year resolution. Anybody already have some of those established? I, I was uh, chatting with my wife, and she had a, a new year's re- resolution that she was going to decrease portion sizes. Anybody have that on their, their list? And on New Year's Day, we were celebrating New Year's with uh, some steaks. And so she decided to cut her steak in half and only eat half instead of the whole thing. So I love it because I got a steak and a half on New Year's Day. <laughs> we're off to a, a great start. True story, right? And so uh, she was like, you're missing the point. Um, <laughs> Anyway, hopefully uh, your new year is, is going well already. Anybody enjoy some time with family and friends over Christmas and the holiday? I noticed though something, maybe you've noticed this, is that the, the, those holiday gatherings tend to lead to some very interesting conversations, some very unique interactions. Anybody have some conversations with family members? You're like, whoa, I did not see it going that direction. And uh, some of them are favorable, some of them uh, not so favorable. I see some people looking at people like, yes, that happened. Uh, Mine was interesting. We were in uh, Vancouver and visiting Adrian's side of uh, the family and uh, her uh, sister and brother-in-law are kind of involved in the media uh, world. And so they had a group of, of friends over and we were sitting around the fireplace. Actually, this was in Whistler, which was just beautiful. And I was uh, talking a, a little bit and they were just reminiscing about different things that happened in news world, which was interesting. The, one of the gentlemen that was there, he's a present main anchor uh, in Chicago on a main uh, television channel there. And he was telling the story and they're reminiscing about old times. And he's like, yeah, I, I remember this particular director that I had that every single week he would kind of choose what angle to take on the news. He said, well, the same, same person, one time they'd celebrate as a hero. And then the next day he'd be like, yeah, let's bring him down a few notches and would redirect the news to have the slant that the, this person was the villain. I'm like, uh, I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to be telling us normal people this story. But he was also telling a story, and these were past stories. Uh, some of us are, are part of the news and are very honest. And, um, uh, but the, the, the other story he was saying, he's like, I remember one time we had a meeting and they gathered around and they were deciding about a local election, who they wanted to see win. And they were gonna determine the news would have an influence on what was presented based on who they wanted to win the election. I was like, wait a second, that seems kind of disheartening when you think about it, when we're not, uh, uh, when we're trying to receive news and information and weigh through it and weed through what's honest and what's accurate and what's not. We're in a day and age, I would suggest, that it's not just the evening news and the news that we have to wrestle through. We have to determine, it's a heavy weight to decide what is truth, what's actual truth. Because it's so important for us what we deem to be true, because if you think about it, what we determine or hold to be true, we can put that on the screen, what we determine to be true determines the way we act toward and react to the world around us. Way we act towards and react to the world around us based on what we've established as truth. 
In that same conversation around the, the fire up there in Whistler, I was asked a question. They, they said, wondering, Pastor, what your thoughts are. That's always a good start. Wondering, Pastor, what your, what your thoughts are about some of the, the things happening with the environment and the impact we're having as a, as a people group on the, on, uh, the, the, the environment and the, the increase in natural disasters around us. What are your thoughts, Pastor? I'm like, oh, shoot, that's a loaded question. Do you guys realize that, right? That has some, some weight behind it. And so my, my response to that is like, you know, to be honest with you, I see things through a pretty different filter. And scripture, as I look at it, talks about in the end times that there will be an escalation of natural disasters. And I said, I, I read the end of the book and things get worse rather than better. They're like, wow, talk about a killjoy. And uh <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and so, so it's interesting uh, the, that kind of uh, froze that conversation. Uh, but, uh, but, but, it, but in that, it was fun to, to, to just interact. And I was thinking about that. Why did I come to that conclusion? The reason I came to that conclusion is because I've found this to be my source of truth. And every single one of us have decisions to make as to what is your truth source. Is it culture? Is it media? I would suggest that's a moving target. That's difficult. If it's, a lot of people are like, well, I just put my trust in myself. But wait a second. What if self isn't trustworthy? What if it has skewed motives? What if it has limited experience? What if it has the potential to mess up and make mistakes? That's where you have to question even whether yourself is a good resource for truth. Well, I would propose, and you probably already see that in your notes and based on this morning's title this morning, that the Bible should be our source of truth, should be that we go to as a resource, not just for some things, but for all things, because it is exactly that. It is the source of truth. It's the source of hope. It's the source of meaning. It's the source of purpose. It's the source of explanation. It's the source of all of the things as humans we desperately need because our God, thankfully, didn't just leave us floating out there. He decided to intervene and to be involved with his creation, and he wrote a book so this morning, I'm going to spend some time making a case, if you will, for God's word, because if it is going to be a truth source in your life, it should go through some degree of scrutiny, shouldn't it? I think everybody should ask the, the tough question and wrestle through wondering, can the Bible be trusted? Can it be trusted? But then if it is trustworthy, the ramifications of that are pretty large because you can't keep living the same if it is true. Let me pray as we start. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to be together and to start the year off just uh, appropriately, even in our worship, even in our time of remembering you through communion. God, we thank you for that privilege and the freedom that we have that allows for that. I ask now that you'd go before our time, that you'd direct uh, the uh, study of your word through the explanation, through the study that I've put in even this week in preparation, God, that you'd be moving, that you'd be present and active in this room. We invite that in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so we're going to start with a little bit of explanation, if, if you will, as to what the Bible claims about itself 
first. And you're like, well, you can't prove the Bible with the, the Bible. That's not my point. I want to start by what the, the Bible says about itself, and then we'll work from there with some maybe misconceptions that we'll address. So the first thing is just a number of passages. We'll just look at them briefly. The first one's found in John 17, 17. Maybe some of these you're already familiar with. Sancti- this is Jesus speaking. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So the first thing that the Bible claims about itself is that it is truth. Not has truth in it, but literally is truth. It is the source of truth. So that's a starting point. Second Timothy goes into a little further explanation. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. All of that pointing to the one, the source of it being God, two, a purpose in it being a resource. That is for reproof, for correction, for training, all of the things we so desperately need. Second Peter then t- goes on to tell us, it says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That gives us explanation of it being from God. God's the one directing and nudging people to write the things that were written in scripture. It's not something that man conjured up. Again, important claims about God. Proverbs 30, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. It's a source of truth that withstands whatever kind of scrutiny and it has for thousands of years. Romans then, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It's our source of hope when you're looking for what are we doing here? Why am I here? It's the source of hope that we cling to. Last passage, Psalms 19 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. All of these claims about scripture are critical to our lives. It's really the source that we should be coming back to time and time again for all of the purpose that we're looking for. But I can't point to scripture and say, yeah, so that's why it's true. But I want to look at some of the outside resources or things that validate our holding to scripture as truth. Maybe some of these these, uh, statements that you've heard in interactions, there may be misconceptions. Maybe you're familiar with this. You've heard someone say, the Bible has some nice stories, but it's not like all those events actually happened. Anybody been in that conversation? It's it's great that they have some nice stories, but did they actually happen? I love when science and scripture collide and actually approve and validate the claims of scripture. In fact, one of the things that I would say in response to that misconception is dig in. 
archaeological finds have been proving and validating scripture and stories for literally hundreds of years. The more we dig in, I was just in Israel with uh, Adrian this last uh, January, so about one year ago uh, to the date. And it was so fun because we kept going on all these different sites and all these different adventures. And they're, they're like, oh yeah, this is a find that's only maybe two or three years old. Oh, here's another one. Here's another one. All The more they dig, the more they find truth that validates the different stories of Scripture. I just wanted to point to two that I thought were kind of interesting in my study uh, this week. One's found uh, from the story of uh, Jericho in the book of Judges. If you know the story, the battle of Jericho, remember the army marches around the city. After marching it, they shout. And what happens to the walls? They collapse. They collapse in. Now, this is one of the more interesting finds as they found the city of Jericho and they uncovered it between 1930 and 1936. And the folks that were involved with that dig, and none of them being Christ followers, to my understanding, none of them, they had one official statement that they wanted to make, and they had all of their names signed to that statement. The statement said this, the main fact, then there remains no doubt the walls fell outward so completely that the attackers would be able to clamber up and over their ruins into the city. So that was their statement. They said that the entire city, the walls fell outward. And here's the interesting thing that the uh, people around to point to. When you're attacking a city, you knock the walls inward. You knock the walls inward. That's how any other siege has taken place in history. And the fact that it would usually be one wall that's taken out before they can come in. But the fact that they found the city with all of the walls falling outward tells you, wait a second, maybe there's something to that story. It's not just made up. It's a description of Joshua 6.20. The wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before they captured the city. Walls were moved outward. Another one that I found was interesting. You've maybe heard of the two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. Anybody heard? What, what are they normally associated with? Yeah, fire and brimstone, you know, like a, a city's known for their success at sinning. Like they did a really good job of that. And part of God's judgment, he's like, I'm, I'm going to destroy those two cities. It was kind of one of those things that was mocked for generations saying, there's no such cities as Sodom and Gomorrah. Another thing that was interesting in the last 50 years, they found a, a group of around 15,000 tablets in, Middle East, in the Middle East that exposed all of these different historical findings. And many of those tablets talk about these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. So that was a little bit of like, whoa, that's interesting. And then more recently, I found it also fascinating where they believe they've uncovered the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It was kind of out in the middle of nowhere, but all around the city in the ground, they kept uncovering massive deposits of sulfur trying to make sense out of it, saying like, wait a second, what, what's going on? Why, why would there be major, well, wait a second, didn't, didn't scripture say that he would rain down fire and brimstone? So in that description, again, validating, as they uncover over 25,000 different excavations that have substantiated scripture and nothing that's doing the exact opposite, nothing disproving the stories of scripture. Kind of cool. 
So when we're thinking, oh, you're just coming up with old made up stories, you're like, yes, let's start by digging in a little bit deeper. Another question or misconception you've maybe heard in interactions, Bible has good teaching, but no way to prove that God wrote it. Have you ever, have you ever had that conversation? No, no way to prove that God was involved with this. Now, here's what I had to push back on that a little bit with. If you had a book that spoke consistently about what was going to happen in the future, and then all of those things happened in the future, wouldn't you start to say, wait a second, maybe there's some validity to that. I mean, even Yoda himself says even a Jedi cannot predict the future. And this is adult Yoda. And so this is important for us to realize that if there's something that happens in the future and it's valid, well, you might have to ask, was God involved with it? The fascinating thing about this book is there are thousands of prophecies about what is to come. And many of them happened so long ago that it's already come to pass. Some we're still waiting on, but many have come to pass. Found it interesting in the Old Testament that there's over 61 different predictions about the Messiah, about who Jesus Christ would be, what he would do, where every single one of them was met. Now, some people will say like, well, some of the things that he said, he could have, you could have predicted and he could have said it because he knew it was predicted. But how about things like that's described in Micah 5.2 that he would be born in Bethlehem? How many of you had a say in where you were born? Were you able to influence that? Not so much. How about the fact that he was there because he had been gathered there for a census? What are the chances of arriving in a city and giving birth that's even outside of your normal town? We see that's the story of Jesus Christ. Zechariah, just to mention three, Zechariah eleven twelve speaks of Jesus being sold for 30 shekels. Probably don't have much say in what you're sold for in that day and age. That's what Judas accepted was the bribe of 30 shekels to turn over Jesus to the Roman soldiers. Psalm twenty-two sixteen speaks of him having his hands and feet pierced. Upon that day and age, crucifixion hadn't even been invented. How weird if you're saying and predicting what somebody's death is going to look like, would you be that in predicting that their hands and feet would be pierced? But in fact, that's exactly how it played out. Those are just three out of 61 different prophecies about the Messiah. I was reading this uh, article this week that had this description where a mathematician went through and he was saying his name was Peter Stoner, which is kind of a funny name for a mathematician. But uh, he estimated the likelihood of only eight of those prophecies somehow coming true outside of the person's control. And here is the number that he came up with. One in one, I don't even know what that number, it's 17 zeros was the chances of only eight of the prophecies about the Messiah coming to fulfillment. That would be the same as if you're in the state of Texas. Any Texans here? Yeah. Uh, if you're in the state of Texas, if you were to layer gold coins two feet deep across the entire state, the chances of you just closing your eyes, walking any direction, any amount of time, and picking out the exact right coin, that's the odds that's equivalent to that number that you just saw. So you start thinking, if that's only eight of the predictions, what about 
61 of the different prophecies? What about the thousands of prophecies about other world events that have been fulfilled perfectly? This week, I had one outside of uh, the Messiah ones that I thought was interesting that Bill Barry uh, shared with me. Once he heard I was doing this uh, passage, he sent me like 90 emails with 8,000 things to weed through. Thank you, Bill. And, uh, uh, but uh, but I, I really like this one that he gave me. Uh, about Ezekiel, if you remember the, the prophet in the Old Testament, prophet in the Old Testament, he made a, a, a prediction or a prophecy about a city called Tyra. Maybe you remember reading about Tyra in scripture or heard of it before. Well, the city of Tyra, they were told because of their sin that they would be wiped out by coming armies, plural, that they'd be wiped out by coming armies, that there wouldn't be a single stone left in Tyra and it would never exist Again, in fact, the decimation would be so severe, this, is the, this was what Ezekiel prophesied, it'd be so severe that the stones would actually be used in the future solely to dry out fish nets. Like, how do you, how do you make that prediction? I'm not talking about like uh, pantyhose, I'm like fish nets, literal uh, nets of fishermen. And so, and so here, here, here's the, the way it, that it played out. Some years later, the people are like, well, we're not really seeing that happen. Then they were attacked, I thought it was interesting, by King Nebuchadnezzar, and the entire people group was wiped out, and they thought once and for all. But they left a few buildings standing, and so the city of Tyre was reoccupied a little bit later on, and people were saying, ha, huh, see, it does still exist. Then a guy by the name of Alexander the Great, ever heard of him before? came to Tyre. He was angry about something. He seemed to be angry about a lot of things. And literally, again, wiped out the city of Tyre. This time, the people had gotten a little bit smarter. There was an island just, just a little bit off of the shore, kind of like a Balboa island, that everybody went out to to stay safe. Well, this made Alexander the Great very upset because he's got the name great in his title. And so he, he, he decided, he decided I'm gonna take all of the remaining buildings and all of the stones from the buildings and I'm gonna build a land bridge out to Balboa Island and kill all of these people. So he literally wiped out every single stone, took it, cleared it and made a land bridge and ultimately marched out and decimated anybody that was left. And guess what that land bridge is used for still to this day? Drying out fishnets, not pantyhose. This idea of what God promises, what he predicted, what he, the prophecies, he fulfills perfectly. So when somebody says, well, you're kind of crazy for believing this book, I would suggest just the opposite. You're kind of crazy not to believe this book. When there's been thousands of things promised would happen that have been perfectly fulfilled. So that's a, a, another response to the, the... And then somebody brought up to me in another email. Lots of people had input in this message this week. Uh, somebody also brought up, what about the case that you'd make for, if you're talking about things validating God's hand and involvement, what about the very existence of Israel? Seriously. Think about that for a second. This tiny little nation that just keeps on existing, keeps on existing. And you remember they existed for a couple thousand years, but about 70 AD, they were completely destroyed after Jesus was here, kind of a tough time. And all of the Christ followers that would follow after that were still following God's word. But the problem was 
God's word still had lots of promises to the nation of Israel. So imagine that for a couple thousand years, I've got this book that's got lots of promises, but the nation of Israel has been wiped out a long time ago. But we know after World War II in 1948, what happened? What became a new nation or a nation again? Israel, again, became a nation, this crazy little country that just keeps on existing, keeps on going, validating, man, there must be a God involved in all of this. You're not crazy for believing this is a valid truth source. Another thing or another thing, or response that you maybe or interaction you've had, um, uh, a misconception is this, the Bible that we have today is not the same as what the original authors wrote. You ever heard that before where people are like, I don't know, I think it's maybe evolved and changed. But the interesting thing is any other resource, we don't question any other ancient writings that we found that we have way, mu- way less validation for. Maybe some of you grew up in the school system where you had to read some of Plato's writings. They have seven manuscripts of Plato Aristotle's writings, they have 49 of, nobody questions its accuracy. Homer's Iliad is the, the ancient book that we have the very most copies of. Guess how many we have of that? 647 copies of that. And, uh, and so lots of people have been bored with that over the years. But, uh, but here's, here's the interesting thing. Guess how many manuscripts and copies we have of the Old Testament? 14,000 copies. So the next closest is 647, 14,000. And guess what the variance, as they keep uncovering more, guess what the percentage of variance of of the content as them as they keep getting older and older? Has a 99% exact replica rate. So basically 99% and the 1%, almost all of those are attached to spelling errors. I have a lot of problem with spelling too, so I give a little bit of lenience with that, right? That's, that's not that big of a deal. The further we go back, the more it validates what we've found to be consistent and accurate. Guys maybe heard not that I don't I forget what year this was that they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a, this guy by the name of Muhammad uh, uh, was goofing around. He was actually ha- watching his sheep. He threw a, threw a rock into a, into a cave. He heard the clang of a, of a broken uh, vessel. He goes in to check it out and he finds the beginning of tons and tons of old copies of scripture. In fact, in, the, in his find uh, of, of, the, uh, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, he found, they found portions or all of every Old Testament book. So it wasn't like, oh, he found a little bit of this. It was either portions of every single Old Testament book. So scholars were very excited. They're like, oh, well, this, th- th- these things, they, they proved to be about a thousand years older than any current existing copy of scripture. So they're like, oh, this is gonna really expose faults or flaws in the, in the passing down of this. Again, to the, the credit of God's word and the faithfulness of scribes passing it on from generation, 95% of it was perfectly accurate. And the 5%, again, was attached to mostly spelling errors. Nothing influencing at all the overall content of God's word. So all of these things start to expose. The more you dig in, the more you start to see, wait a second, there, there's a response for whatever question somebody 
is bringing up. It's, it's re- responded to the scrutiny over generations, thousands of years. Somebody that wrestles through the New Testament, the New Testament's a little bit easier to make an argument for because the earliest copies that they have of that are believed to be within 30 to 45 years of Jesus' life here on earth. And what would that tell you about the, that if they have one that, that is that old? What does that tell you? There were still eyewitnesses alive when that was being written. If something wasn't true, that would have been shot down so quickly, it would have been destroyed by the current people that were, were still here on earth during the time that these New Testament was being written. So all of that being validated to the inerrancy of God's word. One last one that I wanted to point to, if hopefully I'm still keeping you somewhat alert. Uh, but the last one I thought was uh, pretty fascinating is the response to this statement. Isn't the Bible a bunch of different authors with different thoughts and ideas? Haven't you heard that before? It's, a, it's just a bunch of different authors. Like, what, is it, what does it have? The thing that's fascinating about God's word and remarkable is that it's 66 books that were written over a span of 1,500 years. 66 books, 1,500 years with 40 different authors. But the thing that I love about it, when you start to dive in, what do we discover? The thread that goes throughout. There's one hero. How often do you see me point to that in, in, in the study of God's word? There's one he- hero. There, there's only one villain, Satan. There's only one problem, sin. And there's only one purpose. And that's the salvation and rescue of mankind after his choice to go his own way apart from God. What's beautiful about God's word is the consistency of the thread that runs through it. Through it, the Old Testament, all pointing. We did a little bit of that in our origin series. All of it pointing, 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 pointing to the coming Messiah, the coming rescue. Then the Messiah comes. Then all of it, the account of what has happened since the Messiah's rescue and our response to it. It's a beautiful picture. It's part of what God has promised would never go away. I love what Jesus said when he promised to us that this was not changing. He says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Maybe you've heard of the maybe a somewhat noted French philosopher by the name of Voltaire. He actually died in 1778. And before his death, he was quoted in one of the famous statements that he made. He said, within 100 years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. That was his, that was his last statement in 1778. When Voltaire died, they auctioned off his home and it was purchased for the headquarters of the French Bible Society. (laughs) I thought that was kind of fun to think about. So the word of God, what we choose as our truth source is not something that you're crazy for following. It's, I would suggest just the opposite. It would be crazy not to follow it. And here's the dangerous thing about this book is if it is your truth source, it demands a response. It demand, the reason why it's important that we decide what we believe about it is because it doesn't allow us to do things the same way. It calls us to live different. It calls us to live countercultural. It calls us to uh, act and, and behave differently. It call, calls to a different leader in your life other than yourself. That's the invitation of this book. 
And so for us, in response, thinking about the new year ahead, my question is, okay, well, what do you, what do, you do with that information? If this is a truth source, how do I respond? What do I do with that? Here's one suggestion. You got to dig into it. You can't claim something is your truth source. And then you're like, you know, I, I don't really ever read it. I barely ever open it. On Sundays, I listen to the bald guy talk about it, but that's about it. Like that, that can't be your story if it is in fact the source of truth. If it is, you start running things through it. Allow it to be the filter for your decisions. Allow it to be the, the guide for an answer for the tough questions that life throws at you. Remember some years back, I made a, a cheat sheet. Uh, maybe this would be a, a valuable thing for you guys to do. I went through and I jotted down and I started looking up different topics that I thought were relevant and where it talked about it in scripture. Probably, I'm sure there's tons of this stuff out there. I jotted down a, a, like 90 of them. Debt and finances, forgiveness, hope and suffering, sexual immorality, anger, parenting, taming the tongue, thought life, assurance of salvation, help and temptation, all of these different topics and where they're found talked about in scripture, because I don't want just my opinion on it. I was out to lunch with somebody not that long ago and they were asking me my opinion on it. And I, my response was, doesn't really matter what my opinion is. What does God's word say about it? What, what, is it, what is his response to it? Because that's the one thing, if it is your truth source, that actually matters. You can't say, well, I don't really, I don't really think this, or I don't really like that, or I lean that. It doesn't matter what you think. If this is our truth source, we should go to it for truth. It's the best decision we could possibly make. Romans eleven thirty three describes what this decision is. It says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that you chose to be involved with us, that you chose to engage, that you chose to capture the account of your engagement with us on paper, that we're not left floundering, but you chose to provide this resource to seek as our source of wisdom, God. You've given us that. My prayer is, is that we'd elevate it, that we take it seriously. We take steps to engage with it and to get it in our hearts and mind, that we'd seek it in so many different areas that it provides answers for, really every answer. God, we thank you for this chance to be together for the study of your word. And God, we pray that you'd go before us in the week ahead and we'd allow our priorities to reflect this truth. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.
Amen. What a beautiful statement. I will put my trust in you and I won't be shaken. I pray that for us as a church family this new year. A couple things as you're leaving. If you're interested in having something prayed for specifically, we'll have a few volunteers in the front. And once a month, we have an opportunity to give towards kind of our benevolent offering to help those maybe struggling in our own church community. If you want to participate in that, you're welcome to today as you're leaving. God bless you. Have a wonderful Sunday.